Matthew chapter 3, beginning in verse 1, it says, In those days John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea and saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah, saying, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Now John himself was clothed in camel's hair, with a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. Then Jerusalem, all Judea, and all the region around the Jordan went out to him. And were baptized by him in the Jordan, confessing their sins. In the third chapter of Matthew, we're introduced to the king's herald. And a herald in the ancient world announced the arrival of important dignitaries or sovereigns or kings or queens. And whenever a king went out among the people, the herald announced the arrival and urged the people to prepare for the royal visit. And if changes needed to be made, if security issues arose, the herald would help the people make the necessary arrangements. Eastern rulers traveled roads that offered safety and security in the Roman Empire. And when heads of state or important dignitaries, even in our own culture and society, if a president or a head of state comes to the front range of Denver, they work with local law enforcement to make sure that all potential threats are eliminated. In the course of my 20 plus years, on more than one occasion, I've had the privilege of watching um, our own patrol divisions go to the airport to pick up dignitaries. And this last time when I was in Israel, you can imagine I'm with my wife. We're away from the group. We had a free day, and my wife and I are in a cab, and we come to an intersection in Jerusalem, and the whole intersection shuts down because guess who's right there? Benjamin Netanyahu. They cordon off the block. They sweep the traffic and they allow him to go through. And this is exactly what's happening here. Right before Jesus begins his public ministry, John the Baptist announces the fact that the king is about to make his entry. The long-awaited Messiah has come at last. And John the Baptist, John knew that he was appointed to a very special ministry. His ministry was to announce the coming king. To announce the coming king and his kingdom. But also to make an announcement about the preparation of heart that would be necessary in order to receive the king. My father and my father's mother and father, my grandparents, were born in Sicily. And when they came to this country, there was an opportunity for them to turn from their citizenship in Italy and turn to becoming citizens in, in the United States of America And that's what happens. Some of you have come from another part of the planet Earth. And you've gone through the process of citizenship. And you understand that going through the process of citizenship means that you have to renounce old loyalties. And you have to embrace new loyalties. There's a new constitution in the United States. There's a new government. And people who want to be a part of God's kingdom have to renounce the kingdom of darkness. And come to the kingdom of light. They have to renounce the rule of sin. And they have to renounce the rule of self. In a word, they must repent. And so in verse 1, look what it says. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. Now, John the Baptist is one of the most interesting characters in the Bible. In Matthew chapter 11, verse 11, when Jesus was asked about him, in Matthew eleven eleven, Jesus said, Assuredly, I say to you, among those born of women, there has not arisen one greater than John the Baptist. But he who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. What an odd thing to say. He says, among those born of women, none greater. 
John the Baptist, greater than Adam, greater than Noah, greater than Enoch, greater than Abraham, greater than Moses, greater than David. The Bible has a long and a distinguished list of important characters, but Jesus assigns him the designation, none greater. But yet then he goes on and makes the odd statement, intimating that the least citizen in the kingdom of God is greater. And who are the citizens in the kingdom of God? They're the ones who have come by faith into the kingdom through Jesus Christ. You see, John was the last and the greatest of the Old Testament prophets. In Matthew chapter 3, in verse 3, it indicates that he fulfills prophecy. Isaiah's prophecy in chapter 40, verses 3 through 5. And like Jesus, the angel Gabriel announces his birth in Luke chapter 1, verses 11 through 20. The Bible indicates that his mother Elizabeth was a near relative that is a kinsman of Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his father Zacharias was a priest according to Luke chapter 1 verse 5. And so this man, John the Baptist, was basically filled with the Holy Spirit from his mother's womb, according to Luke chapter 1, verses 13 through 15. He was destined for greatness before he was born, and his being filled with the Holy Spirit from the womb is the first mention in the New Testament of this kind of supernatural filling by the Holy Spirit. But this should cause each and every one of us to pause for just a moment. Because you remember the story when Mary shows up and Elizabeth's womb stirs. The Bible says that John the Baptist acknowledges the presence of Jesus. And by the way, nothing could give greater support to the idea that children are children in the womb. Do you know what's the only difference between John the Baptist in his mother's womb and you? Time and nutrition. Because the, in an age of scientific enlightenment, we know that when an egg and a sperm unite, there's a full complement of DNA. In that DNA signature is everything that that person is going to be. And you're making a serious, serious mistake if you think that children in the womb aren't people. And in Acts chapter 19, verse 4, Paul says, then Paul says, John indeed baptized with a baptism of repentance, saying to the people that they should believe on him who would come after him, that is, on the Lord Jesus Christ. And it says, in those days, remember, these are the days that refer back to chapter 2. And he would be called a Nazareth, or he would be called a Nazarene in chapter 2. And so it says, he came. Preaching. The Greek word is kerudzo. The primary meaning is to herald or to announce or to make an announcement. You've heard me say this before. The difference between a teacher and a preacher. A teacher imparts information and a preacher invites you to live that information to embrace it as your own and incorporate it as a part of your life and you'll notice it says in those days John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness the wilderness is the Judean wilderness this is what it looks like if you climb to the top of Mount of uh, the Mount of Olives and you start to head east and you go down into the Judean wilderness. That's what it's going to look like. This is the place where Jesus will later be driven into this wilderness where, where he will be tempted by Satan. This is John's alma mater. This is where he gets his advanced degree in theology. This is the place of profound separation from the world. And that becomes part of the point that Matthew is trying to make. John is a man who lives in the wilderness. He's living away from the world. 
He's living away from the cares and the concerns and the temptations and the difficulties of the world. And one of the things that you should immediately be impressed by is that John doesn't choose them, but they have to choose him. They have to leave the comforts of civilization. They have to leave the city and go into the wilderness, but they're willing to do it because of the spiritual famine in their heart. And you would be surprised how many people are willing to leave the comfort of their circumstances if they know that there's someone who's saying something that comes from the heart of God and the mouth of God. Craig Keener wrote, quote, in times of severe national apostasy in the Old Testament, some prophets like Elijah found it necessary to live outside society's boundaries, unquote. And the wilderness area of Judea was a desert. But like many deserts in the world, it was a little misleading. Because in many deserts, whether it's the desert of Sahara in North Africa or the Mojave Desert where my family, much of my family lived. There are pockets of settlements. And in the Judean wilderness, as you come to the edge of the Judean wilderness at the bottom where the Jordan River empties into the Dead Sea, there were pockets, settlements, if you will. And there were several settlements along the Jordan River where it emptied into the Dead Sea, including the city of Jericho. And at this time, there's this heightened expectation among the people for Messiah's return. There there seems to be periods in human history where there's this great expectation for God. In the 1730s, in the 1740s, there was a man named George Whitfield who came along with John Wesley to the United States of America. And they began to preach the gospel and share Christ. And hearts were opened. And God poured out his Holy Spirit. And people responded. There seemed to be times of ebb and flow, of apathy and indifference but also of curiosity and conviction. And in Jesus' day, like I said, there was this great messianic expectation that a great leader would come and lead Israel out of the bondage of Rome and create an independent, sovereign, political state. And so when John the Baptist appears on the scene, look what it says in verse 2. Here's his message. Repent! For the kingdom of heaven is at hand. You read those words, but you may overlook the fact that John broke the comfortable silence of humanism. You see, it had been 400 years since God had spoken. If you go all the way back to the last book in the Old Testament, the book of Malachi, or as my Italian friends like to say, Malachi. In the book of Malachi, the last words from the prophet, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. And he will turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and strike them with a curse. And then his voice fell silent. And a year went by, and 10 years went by, and 100 years went by, and 200 years went by, and 300 years went by, and 400 years went by. And God had been silent, and God had been silent, and God had been silent. And now the Lord opens up his mouth and communicates a message. And remember that the people were starving for a word from God. And maybe some of you have been starving for a word from God. Maybe it's been a day or a week or a month or for some of you a year. Maybe for some of you several years since you've heard from God. And you so desperately wanted someone to speak a word that you knew would be from the heart of God and from the mouth of God. A word that has something to do with you. 
And you can imagine after centuries of silence, the Jewish people desperate to hear from God. And you know what's interesting to me too? is that the children of Israel recognize, many of them recognize, this is no ordinary man and this is no ordinary message, even though the word itself seems very ordinary. And I'm sure that many, many people had said repent in the past. The Greek word used by Matthew is metanoia. Meta is a word that means to change and noia is a word that describes the mental faculties or the way that you think. And so the word meant to change your mind. And the idea incorporated not only regret or sorrow, but a change of thinking and a change of will. And this would result in a change of life, which we'll talk about later in verse 8. If you look at the passage, it says, therefore bear fruits. Worthy of repentance. The expectation that there is going to be a change of heart, a change of mind, a change of living. And by the way, the Hebrew word is shuv or suv. The Hebrew term literally means come back, come back, come back. Turn around. Can you imagine? 400 years of silence. God breaks the silence with the words, come back. Come back. Turn around. Come back to me. Some of you have drifted off course. Some of you have found a way to avoid the Lord and avoid his claims on your life. The implication being that a person is going in the wrong direction and that's what sin will do. Sin will always lead you in the wrong direction. And I guarantee you that the wrong direction is always the direction that's away from God. If you're walking away from God, you're going in the wrong direction. And so repentance brings us back to the Lord. The prophet Jeremiah begged the Jews Amend your ways and your doings in Jeremiah chapter 7 verse 3. Some of you who, who, who understand what it means to make amends or amend your ways, you know what that means. It means to stop doing one particular thing and start doing another. David, in a broken-hearted confession, wrote in Psalm 51, 17, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart, O oh God. You will not despise, it says in Psalm 51, 17. So in the Bible, sin was was more. It was more than just doing something wrong. It was disobedience and rebellion against God. And God had spoken to the children of Israel in Genesis and Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy. He had spoken to them in Joshua and Judges. There were Report after report and message after message from Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel. And for the most part, they had ignored the message. But the silence was broken. And the invitation was given. And I'm hoping and praying, I'm hoping and praying that the silence has been broken in some of your hearts and some of your lives where you sat there and you go, Lord, I need to hear from you. I need to hear your voice. I need, I need you to say something to me. And the Lord speaks and he says, come back. Come back to me. Maybe you grew up in a religious tradition like I did that stressed penance over repentance Penance are acts that you perform to prove your sincerity, to prove your sorrow, to somehow demonstrate to God that you really mean business with him. But often that had the opposite effect. For sins like lying or stealing or or vulgar language, maybe you, like me, were invited to say a prayer or light a candle, but your heart never changed. Maybe you prayed a prayer like I used to pray. I'm heartily sorry for all of my sins, but it really wasn't true. And the proof, the proof that it wasn't true 
was a continual and repeated return to the wicked behavior. A Sunday school teacher once asked a class what it meant, what that word repentance meant, and a little boy put up his hand and he said, it means being sorry for your sin. And a little girl held up her hand and she said, it means being sorry enough to stop it. She was right. One Bible teacher says repentance involves sorrow for sin, but sorrow that leads to a change of thinking, a change of desire, a change in the way in which you live your life. Repentance always involves a change of mind. It always involves a change of heart. It always involves a willingness to forsake sin. Not simply being sorry, but a sorrow that will lead you to change. Later on, John the Baptist will be imprisoned by Herod. And you all know the story of his dancing daughter-in-law who will dance a dance. And Herod will be completely enraptured by this young dancer offering her up to a third of his kingdom. Ask me what you want, he'll say. And she'll go and she'll ask her mother. And her mother says, I want John the, the Baptist's head on a platter. And the Bible says something remarkable. It says that he was sorry. That he felt really bad about that. But then he went and he killed the Baptist anyway. The Bible says that Judas was sorry that he betrayed Jesus. But it was a sorrow that led to his own self-destructive behavior. Sorrow that leads to the death of someone else or sorrow that leads to your own death is not the kind of sorrow that, that he's talking about. And so when we sin, God requires repentance. And one of the ways that you know that it's not repentance is if you're secretly planning to commit that sin later on today or later on this week. Or you're plotting and planning and you're going to make that rendezvous with sin. John's message of repentance didn't just include the invitation to turn. But he also provided a motive for his listeners to repent. The motive, look what he says, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. This phrase is found only in Matthew's gospel and almost certainly it's a reference to the kingdom promised in Daniel chapter 2 verse 44 where Daniel understood that there was going to be a stone that comes from heaven and it's going to smash the kingdoms of this world. And Daniel had a vision of Babylon and Persia and Greece and Rome but he also had a vision of a world in which a real Messiah would come and he would occupy that kingdom and many of you have prayed the prayer our father who art in heaven hallowed be thy name thy kingdom come thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven all of the bible is orchestrating a plan for the true king the coming king jesus the king to be the rightful king and scholars debate if the kingdom could have been established if the jews had recognized jesus as their king and crowned jesus as their king but whatever else it means the kingdom is the place where god rules supreme it's where god rules over the universe both in heaven and the earth it's god's rule in the past in the present in the future but it's also God's rule in those places that are now marred by sin, by rebellion and disobedience. It's the place where God longs to rule inside of the human heart, inside of the heart that doesn't submit to him or love him or acknowledge him. John's message Ready or not, you're going to have to face God. Ready or not, you're going to have to deal with God. Ready or not, whether you're willing to accept it, even if you reject it with all of your might, all human beings are accountable to God. 
And voices will whisper in your ear. You're not really accountable to God because evolution is true. And all you are is just matter that has turned to mud, which has turned to blood, which has turned to man. That you are the orchestration of events that have molded you and shaped you into something apart from God and apart from the revelation of God. But I'm here to tell you those are lies. Those are lies. Those are lies. As hard as it is for you to hear, there is a creator. He created the heavens and the earth and he created you. And he created you for a reason because he loves you and he wants to have friendship and fellowship with you. And sooner or later, we're going to have to deal with our mortality. Sooner or later, we're going to face God in the courtroom of heaven or we're going to face God in the living room of heaven. And if you face him in the courtroom of heaven, you will do so as judge. But if you face him in the living room of heaven, this is the place that Jesus describes in John chapter 14 where he says, I go and I'm going to prepare a place for you to receive you to myself. Jesus had a lot of different names for heaven, but his favorite name was my father's house. And we will embrace Jesus as king And we'll kneel before him as Lord. Every person, every person, every person will face God. I wish I could tell you something other than what I'm about to tell you. But for some of you, it will be very soon. Sooner than you could ever imagine. For some, it may seem like it's far, far away. But our lives can end suddenly and dramatically and unexpectedly. John MacArthur writes, quote, people should repent because the king is coming. He deserves and requires no less. The unrepentant and the unconverted cannot give the heavenly king the glory that he deserves. And remember 400 years of silence from God and now Israel receives the message, the king is coming, the king is coming. Are you ready? Are you ready to receive the king? The message was a warning and it was also a rebuke. And it seemed inconceivable that they should do anything except wait for the king and accept the king. And to the Jewish person, with that messianic expectation, they were convinced that Messiah was their Messiah, the king was their king, the savior was their savior, the promise was their promise. And every Jew destined for that kingdom And in their closed heart and in their closed mind, they believed that most Gentiles were destined to be excluded. Except for a handful of token proselytes who agreed to convert to Judaism. But God had a whole different plan. God's plan was to include men and women exactly like you. Who grew up in the circumstances that you grew up into. We Christians can and do fall into sin. So what's the solution? Repent. By the way, falling into sin doesn't condemn anybody. That might shock you and surprise you. Falling into sin doesn't condemn you. It's staying in sin. There was a visitor at a fishing dock and he asked the old fisherman who was sitting at the dock, if I fall into the water, am I going to drown? It was his crazy way of saying, how deep is the water? But the fisherman had a good answer. He said, no, falling into the water doesn't drown anybody. It's staying under the water that does the drowning. You can fall. The problem is, are you going to stay? Keep in mind that the kingdom is being offered to the Jews. 
And as the forerunner of the king, John is asking the people to repent, change their mind, prepare for the king. Jesus preached the message in chapter 4, 17. So this exact message that John is preaching, Jesus preaches in chapter 4, verse 17. The disciples preach this exact message in chapter 10, verse 7. And when the nation rejects the king, the kingdom is taken away from them, according to Matthew chapter 21, verses 42 through 43. And so we look at the man's ministry in the wilderness. Look at verse 3. For this is he who was spoken by the prophet Isaiah, saying, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. The mission and the ministry of John in the wilderness predicted Isaiah 40 verse 3. It's interesting again in the verse in Isaiah chapter 40 verse 3. If you go to your Old Testament citation it says prepare the way. It's a highway for our God. Now remember what the herald does. The herald clears the roads, takes away the obstacles. We might think of this as a wilderness trail. Sometimes in order to get from point A to point B, you have to clear the road. You have to clear the road of obstacles and difficulties. If you've ever traveled through the mountains, sometimes there are avalanches or sometimes there's rock slides and you have to clear the road. But John's road are men's hearts. That's the road that he has to prepare The human heart, the obstacles on the road are the barriers of sin. And the way of the Lord is the way of repentance. We turn from sin. We turn to Jesus. We turn to the Messiah. We turn from the crooked paths to the straight. We we turn from the crooked road to the narrow road. We turn from the broad gate that leads to destruction to the narrow gate that leads to life. And the Lord will sometimes use wilderness places. Those are the quiet places. To prepare you or launch you for ministry, sometimes you have to be put in time out so that you can hear from God. Recently, I interviewed one of the stars of Duck Dynasty on the radio program who wrote a book. They call him Mountain Man. I've never seen a single episode of Duck Dynasty. But Mountain Man has written a book called Keeping a Slow profile. And I asked him, mountain man, do you really talk slow like that in real life? He goes, I really do. But you can read my book as fast as you'd like. (laughs) He talks about slowing down. So you can hear the things that really matter. The psalmist in Psalm 46.10 said, Be still and know that I'm God. And sometimes the Lord will put you in time out so that you can pause. So that you can reflect. So that you can hear the voice of God and the urgings of the Holy Spirit. And in verse 4 it says, Now John himself was clothed in camel's hair with a leather belt around his waist. And his food was locusts and wild honey. You can tell that John doesn't buy his clothes at the men's warehouse, where you will like the way you look. Recently in the Middle East, of course, if you've ever gone there and you've ever had the opportunity to touch a camel and a camel's hide... It's like little, little needles. You know what it's like? It's like a 13-year-old whose hair is filled with gel. So, so stiff that you could put somebody's eye out with it. Camel hair clothes and a leather belt speak of his identification with Elijah and the poor. 
The idea is that there's nothing soft about this man. There's nothing glamorous about this man. There's nothing comfortable about this man. In Zechariah's day, in chapter 13, verse 4, some false prophets dressed like prophets in order to deceive people. But his dress isn't to appease people or to deceive people. The clothes that he wore and the food that he ate also preached a message. In the last few days, I just finished a book by a man named Martin Greenfield. Martin Greenfield is quite possibly the most gifted tailor in the world. He has created suits for four presidents. All the way into the present with Carmelo Anthony and Kobe Bryant and Shaquille O'Neal, A-list stars... Martin Greenfield is the most gifted and talented person when it comes to making suits in the whole world. And he tells his story in a book entitled The Measure of a Man. And in this book, he describes as a young 14-year-old and then 15-year-old who's snatched out of his home in Czechoslovakia and he's placed in the camp of Auschwitz and later Buchenwald. But when he's in Auschwitz, he goes there with his grandfather and his father and his mother and his younger brother. And he talks about the time of coming to the camp and there standing before him is the infamous Joseph Mengele. And he remembers, he says, as if it were yesterday, he's looking at his black shining boots and his puffy pants and his perfect shirt. And when Mingala points left, you are going to go to the ovens. And when you point right, you are going to have a short respite. But pointing right doesn't mean necessarily that you're going to live because you're going to face untold hardship. And when he pointed left, his grandfather and his mother and his brother went to the ovens. And when it came to his father and he, he pointed right and it saved his life. And Martin Greenfield lived a life of horror and pain and torture. He tells the story of one trooper beating him with a stick, beating him until he's bloody. And in the process of beating him, he he tears his shirt and insists that Greenfield repair the shirt. And he knows a simple stitch. And he repairs the shirt In disgust, the Nazi officer throws the shirt down. And for reasons that Martin doesn't quite understand, he decided that he was going to put that shirt on under his striped pajamas. And the most amazing thing happened. There were so many opportunities for him to die instead of live, die instead of live. But for whatever reason, when the Nazis would see the shirt under his little striped shirt, they would allow him to live. And Martin made the statement, I understood at that point the power of clothes. And you may look at the clothes of the Baptist in its simplicity Absent softness. John practiced what he preached. That's part of the point of the passage. He won't allow physical comfort to interfere with his message. In the first century, there were domestic beekeepers, but John only ate wild honey. Because in order to eat wild honey, you know what you have to do? You have to smoke the bees out and then you have to crack open the honeycomb. Honey and locusts were the diet of the poorest, of the poorest, of the poor. But it also ensured that nothing, nothing, nothing unclean would ever be eaten. And so John is on a mission. But his message is going to be reflected in the very real way in which he lives. It says, then Jerusalem, then Jerusalem, all Judea and the region around the Jordan went out to him and they were baptized by him in the Jordan 
confessing their sins. And this is amazing. Gentile converts were baptized in a ceremony, but never Jews. If you go to Israel at this very moment, in, in particular places and excavations, you can find a thing called a mikvah. This was a cleansing place where you would take five steps down and you would experience ritual cleansing. And then you would take the five steps up. But here, this isn't conversion or even cleansing. This is something way different. John offers them a way to express the change of mind and the change of heart. That's the point. Baptism is a kind of drowning and cleansing at once, which in effect is saying, die sin. So here is a visible, tangible way of expressing the change of heart. Emil Brunner writes, quote, the important thing to see in verse six is that remedy for sin is not denying sin's presence or explaining it away or exculpating. Exculpating is just a big word, which means laying fault outside of yourself. Bruner goes on and says, this is what you do with sin. You admit it. We are free from sin only when we face it, when we disown it by owning up to it. The first way to repent is to admit our sins openly. Repentance is not first of all a good work. It's freely admitting our bad work. God forgives only sinners. And he who conceals this transgression will not prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes them will obtain mercy. That's what it says in Proverbs chapter 28, verse 13. The influence and the effects of John's preaching were immediate and widespread. That's what it means when it says... Then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region around the Jordan went out to him. The influence and the effect of John's preaching was immediate, widespread. You'll remember later on in the New Testament when the religious leaders are trying to trap Jesus. They're asking him a question. And Jesus says, I'll answer your question, but first you answer my question. The baptism of John, was it from God or from men? And they say to themselves, if we say from God, he's going to say, why didn't we do it then? If we say from men, everybody's going to stone us because everybody believes that he was the voice of God, the prophet of God, instructing us to turn from our sin and turn to God, and the people are going to stone us. And so they say, we don't know. And Jesus says, then neither will I tell you. And so in the text, when it says to confess their sins, it didn't just mean to say out loud, I did this, I did that, I did this, I did that. Whatever it means to confess your sin, it means to agree with God about what sin is and what sin does, that sin invites judgment, that sin is what dooms Satan forever to hell, that sin is what brings physical death to human beings. It's what brings spiritual death to Adam and Eve and disorder and pain to the universe. It serves as an object lesson for the angels in heaven as they watch the horror of sin. Our sin is what results in our Savior's death. And for the Christian, sin brings a loss of light and a loss of joy and a loss of righteousness and a loss of love and a loss of fellowship and a loss of confidence. And so whenever you see the word sin, you can guarantee that it means loss. And the message of John, dramatic, singular, response, overwhelming, life-changing. You know what's interesting to me? We live in a culture, in a society where people believe that they can receive Christ, but there's no change. 
Maybe some change in thinking, maybe some change in feeling, but no change in living. J. Edwin Orr, the revivalist and historian, was with Billy Graham when the evangelist addressed a meeting in Beverly Hills attended by the notorious gangster Mickey Cohen. And by the way, our friend Martin Greenfield, who escaped Buchenwald, would later fit Mickey Cohen for a suit. J. Edwin Orr writes, quote, He expresses some interest in the message. Or later wrote, So several of us talked to him, including Dr. Graham. But he made no commitment until sometime later when another friend urged him with Revelation 3.20. You know that passage. Behold, I stand at the door and knock, and if anyone comes to me, I will open the door and I'll have fellowship with him. He writes, This he professed to do. But his life subsequently gave no evidence of repentance. The mighty change of mind and heart and life. He rebuked our friend telling him, You didn't tell me that I'd have to give up my work. He meant the rackets. You didn't tell me that I'd have to give up my friends. He meant his gangster associates. He had heard that so-and-so was a Christian cowboy, and -and so-and-so was a Christian actress, and -and so-and-so was a Christian senator. And he really, really, really thought that he could be a Christian gangster. The fact is, repentance is the missing note in much of modern evangelism. There is no such thing. As repentance, change of mind, change of heart that doesn't result in a change of life. Augustine wisely wrote, before God can deliver us, we have to undeceive ourselves. Isn't that interesting? Undeceive ourselves. What in the world do you suppose it means? Minimum, it must mean Being able to see our sin the way God sees our sin. A schoolgirl was saved and someone asked her, what were you before? She said, a sinner. Then she was asked, what are you now? And she answered, a sinner. And they asked, what's the difference? And she answered, I was a sinner running after sin. And now I'm a sinner running away from sin. That's good theology. You don't have to have an advanced degree to get it. The message of John the Baptist was a call to repentance in verse 2. The motive, the kingdom of heaven is at hand in verse 2. John urges the people to prepare for the coming Lord in verse 3. But John's message is also going to include several more elements. To flee from the wrath to come, judgment in verse 7. Bear fruit in verse 8. Understand that God isn't going to give you special treatment on the day of judgment in verse 9. Recognize and acknowledge the power of God in verse 10. Demand that fruit is demanded in verse 10. That everyone who bears bad fruit is going to be condemned in verse 10. And once again, the people will be urged to repent and be baptized with water by man in verse 11. And repent and be baptized with fire by the Holy Spirit in verse 11. And in the end, and in the end, the Messiah... The Messiah will recognize the difference between the believer and the make-believer. Have you repented of your sin? And I don't mean, again, being sorry like King Saul or full of remorse mentally and emotionally like Judas. But real sorrow, a godly sorrow that results in the way that you think. A change in the way that you feel. A change in your will. I read a story that sort of sums it all up. There was a little boy named Jimmy and he had trouble pronouncing the letter R. So his teacher gave him a sentence to practice at home. Robert gave Richard a rap in the rib for roasting the rabbit so rare. Several days later the teacher asked him to say the sentence for her. Jimmy rattled it off like this. 
Bob gave Dick a poke in the side for not cooking the bunny enough. He managed to avoid the letter R. And there are a lot of people like that today. They find a way to avoid the letter R. Because they love their sin. They'll go to great lengths so that they don't have to repent. God loves you, but he doesn't want you to remain in your sin. And for those of you who, it's been such a long time since you've heard from God, listen to the message. Come back. Come to me. That's the message for some of you. For others, the message is, come back to me. Come back to me. I'll help you. I just need you to change your mind. I need you to be willing to change your heart. I need you to be willing to go in a different direction. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, I pray for that person. They hear the voice speaking to them. I'm speaking to you. That the Lord loves you. That he's willing to change you. Forgive you. He invites you to go in a different direction. To live a different life and be a different person. And he's not asking you to do it by the power of your own will. But a promise to come inside of you. And to change you. And so Heavenly Father, I pray for that person disconnected from your love and disconnected from your forgiveness and disconnected from hope. Lord, I pray that even now that they will pray this simple prayer. Heavenly Father, I want to know you and I want to love you and I want to hear from you. I want to experience the grace and mercy that comes from having a right relationship with God. I want to trust Jesus as my Lord and my Savior. I believe that he was born of a virgin and that he lived the perfect life that I could never live and that he died on the cross for my sins and he rose from the dead for my justification that he's seated at the right hand of the Father and that he'll come again to judge the living and the dead and that a preparation has to be made of the heart. And Lord, I pray for the Christian who has turned her back, his back on you. And that, Lord, with all of their heart, they would hear the message of hope. Come back to me. Come back to me. I'll love you. I'll forgive you. I'll cleanse you. I'll wash you. I'll give you a new start and a renewed hope. Lord, I pray for that Christian that they would do exactly that. Turn from their sin. Turn to the Savior. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's.